Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Talk Recorded live. Good evening, everybody. This is Brandon Pemberton of Sports Trap Radio on NGSCSports.com via Talk Show. And I'm flying solo tonight my boy aunt green my super co-host is under the weather so you know i'll be riding solo tonight recapping super bowl 49 in a minute baltimore times and pro player insiders ravens reporter and afc north reporter teron davenport will be joining me to talk and recap super bowl 49 he was out there for super bowl week he you know he was there he was amongst the people, you know, on media day, and he covered the game as well. So I'm looking forward to talking to Ron, to, to Ron Davenport about the game and, you know, how the week went and, you know, his opinion on, you know, the X's and O's. And obviously everybody wants to talk about the last play of the game and, you know, the Seahawks decide to throw the football. Pete Carroll and Daryl Bevel deciding to put the football up in the air. You know, having Marshawn Lynch in the backfield, arguably the best running back in the NFL, and they decided to put the football up in the air. So, you know, that's what we're going to talk about today. I mean, Super Bowl Forty Nine was a great game. Um, I did pick the Patriots to win the game 27-24. to 24. Um, You know, they ended up winning 28-24. to 24. But after, you know, that last drive and them being a half yard away, you know, I thought they were going to turn around. They were going to hand the ball to Beast Mode, Marshawn Lynch, and, you know, they would win that football game. But that's not how it turned out. But that being said, Tom Brady in that fourth quarter, he was 12 for 13, you know, over 140 yards passing, two touchdowns, no interceptions. For the night, he was 37 for 50, four touchdowns, two interceptions. He was the Super Bowl MVP. And in my opinion, Tom Brady had his best Super Bowl performance of his six total Super Bowls that he's played in. And now, you know, for his career, he's 4-2 in the Super Bowl, four Super Bowl titles under his belt, along with Joe Montana, a Hall of Famer, along with Terry Bradshaw, another Hall of Famer. And without a doubt, when you talk about some of the greatest quarterbacks to ever play this football game, Tom Brady's name is in that discussion. It deserves to be in that discussion, and he laminated that on Sunday evening with that Super Bowl win versus the Seattle Seahawks. Um, you know, we on Friday, you know, me and Aunt Green had did our, our, our show, you know, our Super Bowl preview show, and, you know, we talked about some of the key points in the game, and we broke it down, and, and you know, who we thought would win, and when I talked about the Seahawks in this game, and I'm looking at the keys, the victory I wrote down, and I have, you know, posted it up on my website. You can go to Sports Trapping, T-R-A-P-P-I-N, brand, B-R-A-N, dot wordpress.com. 
which is my new website. And, you know, when I talk about the Seahawks' keys of victory and looking at them defensively, number one, obviously, for me, was put pressure, you know, Tom Brady, getting pressure on Tom Brady. The next was, you know, if the Patriots were to try to run the football, stopping their run game, you know, trying to force them to be to be one-dimensional was one of the things that I looked at. And, you know, I said, don't blow assignments. Make tackle, tackles and try to take the football away. And they had two takeaways in the, in the game. And, you know, they had two takeaways in the game. And, you know, I'm trying to get Teron Davenport on right now. He's just not recognizing the pen. Let me see. See if we can get Teron on. Okay, I just hopefully we can get this situation and get Teron Davenport on. Cause I don't believe I can, you know, obviously I can't call out and get him on because of the, uh, you know, the route that we're going. Um, you know, I talked about them getting pressure on Tom Brady. I talked about them stopping the Patriots run. I'm trying to make them one-dimensional. And, you know, third, I had contained Gronkowski. However, you were going to decide to do it. And Gronkowski is one of the most indefensible players in the NFL because you put a linebacker on him, he's too fast. You put a safety on him, he's too big. And, you know, Cam Chancellor is probably the the closest player that probably can actually do something with Gronkowski. And Gronkowski has success versus Chancellor and K.J. Wright in that game. You know, I talked about containing him, meaning – you know, he'll catch the ball, but get him to the ground. Don't allow him any big plays. Don't allow him to, to flourish in the red zone. He did beat K.J. Wright down the sideline for a touchdown. Um, and then, four, I talked about them not blowing assignments and, you know, not, you know, not blowing assignments, making tackles, and trying to take the football away. And I believe we do have Teron Davenport live on air, Teron, is you? Yeah, I'm on. Yeah, I had to. I used the pin on there when I I clicked the link and it had a different pin on there. But yeah, I, I got it. So we're good. All right, we are live on the air with Baltimore Times Ravens reporter, pro player insider, Raven and AFC North reporter Teron Davenport, who spent the week at the Super Bowl, covered everything during the week, the media day, and then covered the game on Sunday. Teron, what's going on, bro? It's been a while. Yeah, it's been a while, man. What's what's good with you? Not much, man. You know, still at it at the grind. You know, doing what I do. Um, before we get into the actual game, I want you to talk to everyone about your experience. You know, covering the Super Bowl and stuff during the week. You know, just let everybody know. You know what the experience was like for you. 
Yeah, I mean, it was a really good week. I, my focus was the Patriots. My partner, Brandon Howard, his focus was the Seahawks. So it was good to get the focus on one particular team. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, just going out there to the, the, the uh, daily press conferences, having the opportunity to talk shop with the guys. Man, I had great conversations with Edelman, Amendola, um, Brady, and Gronk, specifically talking about the slot position and how they're able to use that to dominance, how they're able to paper cut every team to death. So it, it was pretty excuse me, pretty cool. I tell you, man, all the running around and lack of sleep, man, you know, my body broke down and, and I, I got sick, man, and I apologize for the coughing. But, man, it, it it was a great experience, though, going out to some of the events in, in Scottsdale. Uh, you know, they had a cigar lounge event with Ron Jaworski and Mike Ditka and plenty of other guys that came in. So it was pretty cool working Radio Row also. So it was a great experience. It was good to get up close and, and really get to talk to these guys and, and and see them execute some of the things that, that we discussed throughout the week. So it was a good experience. Okay, definitely. Now let's get to the, to the actual football game. Um, you know, it was a great football game. We all know how it ended. But, you know, the game, you know, how it started out, you know, the Patriots striking first. And you talk about – how, you know, they used the slot receiver, you know, to nickel and dime the Seahawks. And I actually thought, you know, that was a great game plan, trying to take advantage of their smaller, quicker wide receivers and their ability, you know, to get five here, seven here, and, you know, maybe make a guy miss. Talk about how they went about attacking the Seahawks in this football game. Well, really the whole thing, when you're going against a team like the Seahawks, guys that like to press and, and like to, uh, you know, get physical, you you really need to be able to just oh, off the line on your release. you got to be able to, to get open, and you got to be able to maintain that timing. Brady talked so much about how important the timing is and how important it is for his guys to be on the same page with him when they're running those choice routes. So it, it was definitely important to be on the same page, like I said, but you know, Edelman and Amendola, they did a really good job of getting that yards after catch. There were quite a few times where those guys caught the ball and they broke a tackle and they got the first down. So it was a combination of, of winning in the slot and getting yak. And, and they kind of beat the Seahawks at their own game And that the Seahawks are such a really solid tackling team. And there were some missed tackles that led to some first downs. And then not to mention Shane Vereen, he had 11 receptions in the second half. He really got going because what the Seahawks started to do was cloud the short passing lanes, and that opened it up for Vereen out of the backfield. He didn't even know it. I told him after the game, I said, you were two catches away from setting a record, and he just smiled, and he said he was happy with the win. But that that's really how they did it. I mean, Gronk is Gronk. You know, you line him up outside, and I don't care if it's Cam Chancellor or Bobby Wagner, neither of them could cover him, and he showed that. Then when they had him in the slot, he, he definitely attracted that bracket coverage. And then they had him lined up on the on the, uh, on the the right, wide on the right, and that's when you had that touchdown where he was able to use his body to, you know, get that position and catch the deep pass. So Gronk was another factor. So it was really just a combination of so many things. And what a lot of people don't realize is if they wanted to, they could have pounded the Seahawks 
on the ground because they were running blunt inside the on the inside the tackles and he was getting yards, but they just got away from it. And you know, Brady ended up having I think it was like fifty pass attempts or something along that line. First half he set a record for most receptions in a half with twenty two. So Brady definitely came out slinging and you know it was on his arm. That's that's how they won that game. Yeah, I definitely agree. I mean because I like going back and watching Seattle versus the Packers, watching that film, the Packers were very successful running the ball to, you know, their left side and the Seahawks' right side of their defense early in that game. I think they had 13 carries for almost 90 yards running to that left side, you know, at one point, and then, you know, they had got away from it. And, you know, I thought that the Patriots, and then, like you said, they did have success you know, running the ball early. And I also believe that, you know, they would, you know, be, you know, stick with it. But, you know, watching the Patriots all year, I think the Patriots had the most balanced offensive, you know, team in the league in which, you know, depending on what week it was or what opponent it was, they could attack you in, you know, any way they chose to do it. And like you said, I mean, Tom Brady was 37 for 50, had the three twenty-eight, the four touchdowns, two interceptions, and I mean this probably, in my opinion, I think this was his best performance out of the six Super Bowls that he played. I definitely think it was. I mean, you look at some of the throws, the the drop in the bucket throws that he made down the field. I mean, that pass to Gronk was a perfect throw. I mean, it was like he stood right over top of him and just dropped the ball into his lap. I mean, it was a perfect throw, and then. There was another throw that he made in the fourth quarter where he hit Gronk across the middle, and uh, he the way that he threw it, it, it made Gronk kind of run faster and, and allowed him to break a tackle. And those are the things you want to see from a quarterback, and, and that's why I was on a different show earlier, and I said, you know, Brady is a guy that can make any throw that you want him to, whether it be touch, uh, leading the receiver, Lost in the downfield. I mean, the guy, he has it all in his arsenal. And he, he showed it this game. He made every throw you could imagine. He hit his um, slot guys, you know, in stride and gave them chances. And there were a few times where he threw the ball down and away so they would turn and, and, and kind of fall instead of uh, getting hit by the, the defender that, that was sitting there in the zone. So it, it was definitely a, a really good display for Tom Brady. Okay, now let's go over to the Seahawks and, you know, let's talk about how the Seahawks, you know, decided to attack the Patriots defensively with their offense. What did you see from that Seahawks offense? You know, I know they got off, you know, kind of a slow start and, you know, you know, with about a minute left in the in the first half of the game, they were able to drive down and get a late touchdown and, you know, Going into halftime, the score ended up being tied 14-14. Talk about the Seahawks and their approach offensively. Yeah, initially they were sputtering. Uh, they did have a couple runs to Marshawn, which you definitely would expect. The thing was with them, they didn't really get going until they found a matchup, and that matchup was the 6-5 uh, Matthews going against um, Kyle Arrington, you know, who, who's 5'11", 6 feet. And when when they found that matchup, and it was on that 44-yard uh, reception that he had, and, and he is, you know, he, he's got five inches on Arrington, so he was able to use his body and 
and high point the ball and make the big catch. It was a 44-yarder, and that set them up for their first touchdown. And then they went back to him a few more times. As a matter of fact, in that first half, he and Ricardo Lockett averaged over 25 yards per reception, and that was off of four, I believe it was five receptions. So both of these guys were able to get the matchups downfield. Ricardo Lockett, a lot of people don't realize, he's 6'3", 212 pounds. So he's not a little guy either. So they were able to get their, their bigger guys matched up against the smaller Patriots corners, and those were the, the advantages for them. You look at that back shoulder catch that Matthews had, uh, I believe it was the second touchdown. Yeah, it was the one that tied it up. That was that was a, a really nice throw and a, and a very nice catch and just a classic example of how you use your body and, and why bigger receivers are so valued. So for the Seahawks, it was about running Marshawn, getting them to uh, be in one-on-one matchups and and getting the ball to the to their bigger receivers. Now there were a couple of times where Russell Wilson. There was actually one time in particular, Russell Wilson broke the pocket. And Doug Baldwin, <clears throat> excuse me, tried to run with him. You know, they ran the, the scramble drill, and, and Darrell Revis just stuck with him. And it, it was pretty cool to see, <clears throat> excuse me, because this is a conversation that Revis and I had earlier. You know, I asked him, why is it so difficult to resist the temptation to come up and tackle Russell Wilson when he attacks the line of scrimmage? And here it was, Revis was in that exact situation that we talked about. And he, he told me when we talked, he said that the most important thing was to plaster the receiver, stay with him. And he stayed with Baldwin the whole time. I mean, he was in his jersey. But then at the last minute, he came up and he forced Russell Wilson out of bounds. So they were really um, set on, on not allowing Wilson to make those plays downfield and, and breaking the pocket. But at, at the end of the day, Matthews and, and, and Lockett, those guys made some big plays for him. Yeah, they did. I mean, because, like, when I wrote my article, you know, both teams, you know, I listed keys to victory. And for Seattle's offense, you know, the big plays, you know, a lot of their big plays come, you know, off of play action or, you know, it may be a situation in which Wilson gets rushed, but he'll get out the pocket and then, you know, he'll make a big play down the field to one of these receivers. You know, and I said for the Patriots, you know, not allowing those big chunk plays of 20-plus yards. And, I mean, right. in the game, when you look at it, and I'm looking at the stats now, Seattle had one, two, three, four, I think five passing plays of 20-plus yards or more. And, you know, it's not it's not oh, Russell Wilson doing a seven-step drop and he just traditionally throwing the, the ball downfield. I mean, a couple times it did happen with that. And, I mean, I had no idea – one, Chris Matthews wasn't on my radar. I'm not going to sit and act like that he was. He wasn't right. on my radar. I had no idea he would be a part of the game plan, but he came out and had four catches for 109. And, you know, two of those, a couple of those plays, it was, you know, a drop back and we just going to throw it to Matthews. But a majority of the time, and we both watched Seattle play all year, it's usually a situation in which Russell Wilson is buying time with his feet. And then he'll make a very accurate throw downfield for these guys to make a play on. Yeah, I mean, people shortchange Russell Wilson 
as far as his greatness is concerned. And I kind of went on a rant <laughs> during the Super Bowl uh, on, on Twitter about that, man. And it was after that, that second throw that he made to Matthews. And the thing with him, it, he could throw the ball deep as good as anybody. He has the, the, the mid-range passing game intact. He has the touch part of it. And then on top of that, he's somebody that just will create so much in the pocket with his movement. And then also when he gets outside of the pocket. I mean, the guy, he doesn't have to put up those elite 5,000-yard passing, you know, years along with 40 uh, touchdowns and, and, and five interceptions. He doesn't have to put that up to be considered elite. <clears throat> in my book, elite is somebody who will always have his team in a position to win and rarely makes mistakes that cost his team the game. Now, obviously, some people will point to the interception at the end and say that was Russell Wilson's mistake. I'm sure we could get into that a little bit later. I don't feel that way. But nevertheless, Russell Wilson is a quarterback that deserves to be mentioned when you're talking about elite quarterbacks because he is just that. Yeah, I totally agree. Now, um, Seattle came into this game defensively you know, banged up, obviously. And then, I mean, they had a bad break in the game. As Jeremy Lane, who's their, their inside corner, their slot corner, and a pretty decent player, you know, made a big play um, after Michael Bennett. Michael Bennett, real quick, dominated the line of scrimmage in the first half of that game. Yeah. Michael Bennett was a tear, and he forced Brady into throwing an interception. Lane made a big play, but he broke his arm on that play and was done for the rest of the game. And when it happened, I said, that's not a good thing because Daryl Simon is the next guy up, and Daryl Simon isn't a guy that can play inside. And Daryl Simon is a guy guy that a smaller receiver, a smaller, quicker receiver could take advantage of. Like Jeremy Lane was made to play inside and, you know, and play well against an Amendola or an Edelman, but, the loss of Lane, talk about the impact that it had on the rest of the game. Yeah, I mean, that clearly had an impact. You notice Edelman and, and Amendola started to get off a little bit, and they had to reconstruct their strategy as far as, like I said earlier, occupying those intermediate passing lanes. You know, it, you had to begin to have your, your middle linebacker, um, Bobby Wagner, start dropping back into coverage further instead of being able to stick with the running back or help out against Grunt. You know, it, things change when you when you lose your best nickel guy. And you look at what they have. Byron Maxwell is, is, is not a big corner, but he plays like one. He has long arms, and he likes to get his arms on the receiver. And he, he's not the guy to really use to cover an Amendola or an Edelman. Or, or even uh, a Vereen out the backfield, you know. So it, it was interesting how they had to redo the game plan, and they did that, and it worked to their success in the third quarter, and that's when the Patriots just tweaked it back into their favor, and they, if you notice, they started to target Shane Vereen. So it was a good amount of chess going on, and I like to see two really solid coaching staffs go at it the way that they did. Yeah, I think – you know, what the great coaches do, and I talk about it all the time, and in, in any sport, the great coaches will come in with a game plan and, you know, the other coach may adjust and then you got to make another adjustment. Like you said, it's, you know, a complete chess match and, you you know, you can the great coaches will adjust and make changes on the go. And that's what we've seen in this game. 
like looking at the Patriots defensively, talk about I mean, and Marshawn Lynch did have a good game, and you know we know how it is with Lynch. You know, you know you may stop him for two here, three here, you know four here, but you know he'll keep hammering and hammering away. Talk about the job that the Patriots front seven did. You know, Jamie Collins and Dante Hightower bought their big boy pants and they came to play. And you know, Vincent Warfel, you know, not looking at the stats, but just looking at the job that him and Allen Branch did inside. You know, talk about what that front seven did. Yeah, I think it's great you bring up Will for it because one thing that I continuously saw was him occupying two blockers and, and you know, actually stonewalling the, the, the running game. You know, he was one of the first to get to Lynch, and obviously Lynch is a guy that you got to use four or five guys to tackle and he would more or less be the one that to absorb the initial hit, and the other guys would come in and, you know, make things happen. Jamie Collins is somebody that I, I've been saying, you know, a lot this season is a budding superstar. He's somebody that's going to be one of the best linebackers in this game in the next couple of years, and, and he didn't do anything but uh, prove that this week. You know, um, I believe it was the first half he, or the first quarter he had five tackles, so he was already, you know, in the mix constantly. And, I mean, you can't say enough about that, that our front seven. They did a really good job of, of getting to Marshawn. And, obviously, Lynch is going to get his. I mean, he's, that's just the way that this team operates. But they definitely did a good job of limiting him and not letting him have too much of an impact early in the game. Yeah. All right. Now, you know, third quarter, the Seahawks, you know, scored 10 points. They basically won that third quarter. They go into the fourth quarter up by 10 points. In Super Bowl history, you know, any team that's been up by 10 points going into the fourth quarter has been 29-0. and But what we saw was the Patriots and Tom Brady, you know, show why he's a first ballot Hall of Famer, show why he's one of the best ever play this game. He went 12-13 for 13 in the fourth quarter over 140 passing yards, two touchdowns, um, and, you know, you know, gave the two touchdowns, and, you know, he left the field with the lead, you know, with, you know, 450 left in the game. You know, I mean, actually two minutes left in the game, if I'm not mistaken. Talk about what Tom Brady and the Patriots were able to accomplish offensively in that fourth quarter. Yeah, uh, first and foremost, it was that sack that, by Rob Ninkovich that really set that tone. And Brady, he, he said after the game, he said once that happened, he did, he told all the guys, he said, we just need one drive to get back in the game. And mm-hmm. it was just all about taking what the defense gave them. And that's when Vereen, I believe he had five receptions in those last two, two drives. And, I mean, they just consistently – gave him the ball out the backfield. He would run that arrow route. He would run the choice route. He was running a a variety of routes, and he would catch the ball, and oftentimes he would break a tackle and get that that first down, and it would be on a third and seven, a third and eight, those type of situations. And and that that breaks the defensive back when they give up that that first down on a third and all, especially a a defense like the Seahawks. You know, these are guys that when they're – able to get a lead like this, they like to pin their ears back and they they're gonna they're gonna go hunting. It's just like, you know, sharks smelling blood in the water and, and that's what they smell. 
Bennett stepped up, and he just continuously got in the backfield. Unfortunately, Clifford Real got hurt. Uh, that definitely didn't help them. But it was just a matter of taking what was given to them. And then also they they did make sure that they got their guy, Gronk, involved. They lined him up wide. He was able to work the the middle of the field, you know, on the slant routes and things like that. So it, it was a nice combination of, of, like I said, not forcing the ball downfield, but taking the shots that were available to him. And that's that's really all they did. You know, whatever Seattle presented to them, they took it. And that, that's what it came down to. Yeah, I agree. All right, now, the last drive of the game, Seattle gets the ball. Oh, you know, Russell Wilson, you know, those guys, you know, he does what he does. You know, I was very confident when they got the ball. And, you know, they drove the ball downfield. We've seen them get to the half-yard line. They get to the half-yard line. At the end of the play in which Marshawn got it to the to the half-yard line or yard line, between that play and the next play that they decided to call, which was a pass, they wasted about 30-something yeah. plus seconds, which I think was a, a complete mistake. Like, I have no idea why they decided to wait that much amount of time. They called a pass play. They called a pick play. Brandon Browner, you know, does a great job, uh, you know, at the line of scrimmage, jamming up the first guy, not allowing – it to be a clean rub. And, you know, they caught a pass play, and Malcolm Butler did his homework, like he said. He made a break on the ball, intercepted it, ball game. Me, probably 99.9% of the world, whether you a football guy, whomever it may be, my daughter said, why didn't they give Beast Mode the ball? Your thoughts when you – seen what happened. I mean, what was going through your mind when you seen that they decided to drop back and throw, throw a pass that cost them the game? I tell you, it was crazy. It, Marshawn ripped off that four-yard run, and I, I was packing up, and I, I said, okay, let me just get a little bit of background information because I, I felt that I was going to have to interview Matthews. You know, I was scheduled to do an MVP piece. So uh, I, I honestly was not looking forward to it. You know, I, I wanted to interview Brady. And uh, fortunately, the the way that things turned out, I was able to do that because the Patriots won. But, you know, I tell you, man, I thought for sure that they were going to run the ball. I mean, how many times have you played mad and and had the ball in that situation? And and you gave the ball to your running back or you caught a QB sneak. Now, obviously, I wouldn't have caught a QB sneak, but why not work the read option? And there there were plenty other plays that they could have called. But, see, the thing is, if you look at the game, they had the matchup. Like, the play was there, and it was just one of those things with Daryl Bevel. He got a little – he outcoached himself, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And it's one of those times where you have to – I don't care what the matchup is. I don't care what is dictating it. I don't care if they have five defensive tackles in their front seven. I'm going to run Marshawn. That's, that would have been my mindset. However, I could see where he was coming from because, again, he had the matchup. Obviously, Browner had that great jam at the line, and that knocked things off a little bit. But I tell you, just like Bevel said, if Lockett could have attacked the ball a little bit better, mm-hmm. we're talking about, man, Daryl Bevel had the guts to call a run play, a pass play, when everybody thought he was going to run the ball, and 
If he trusted his quarterback to get the ball to his guy, what a coach if that play works. Now, another thing with Lockett, what he needs to do is he needs to flatten that route a little bit. When he saw that jam happen and he, he saw that open lane right there, he needed to flatten it out. He went on a little bit too much of an angle, which allowed Butler with his no hesitation, no false steps to come up and make that interception. So there's a couple things going, but in my book, it should have been a run. There's no reason why Marshawn does not get the ball at least three times right there. And, uh, end yeah, of the day, it, it's, it is what it is, you know. Yeah, I mean, I totally agree. I definitely, I mean, at that point, you know, you just give Marshawn Lynch and you give him his tries. And, you know, you know what? If they gave Marshawn Lynch the ball three times and the Patriots stopped him three times, I wouldn't have had no complaints. I mean, I I don't think anybody would have complained. We would have been saying that the Patriots had one of the best goal line stands in the history of football to win the game. You know, that would have been what everybody was saying. But I totally agree with you on, you know, Lockett, you know, and that's, you know, experiencing. But also, when I went back and was looking at it, you know, I actually, like, if they were going to pass the ball, I wouldn't have been opposed to having a play-action pass. Or, you know, we've seen them during the year run the read option and have it as, you know, a three-option play. You give it to Lynch, you know, Wilson keeps it, or he has the option off of it to make a pass. And it would have been to put them in a situation in which if he didn't have Lynch or if he didn't have a run and the pass was there, he could have threw the ball away, stopped the clock, and they they could have came back and ran, brought in the heavy package, and it just would have been man-on-man to win the game. Yeah, I mean, it's that simple. But And it's interesting you mentioned the play action. That's actually what the Patriots did when they threw the slant to Brandon LaFell. They, they used that play action, and it, it gave just that small second a hesitation that pulled the linebacker up and that opened up the passing lane. So you're 100% correct. And everybody in the world expected that them to run the ball. So play action definitely would have worked. And that may have given them that, that extra second that they needed to to get the ball to lock it, you know. So it's, it's one of those things where, I mean, that call is either going to make you look great or it's going to make you look bad. And unfortunately for Daryl Bevel, it made him look bad. But these people out here uh, calling him an idiot and this and that and the worst coach, they need to take another look because this is a guy that has done an awesome job at getting Russell Wilson in position to make plays and, and just really just, just combining the, this team, doing so much with so little at the receiver position. You know, you, you got to give him credit for that. And, and uh, I think that Daryl Bevel is a really good coach. And I got to talk to him afterwards. He took accountability. He said that that was his play call. Russell Wilson didn't check it or anything like that. And then obviously later it came out that, you know, he said that Lockett should have played the ball better, but at the end of the day, I, I, I don't think that it was a, a, as dumb of a play call as, as people make it out to be. And it was just, like I said, a coach just reading the matchups that, that were given to him. And, and sometimes you, coaches are, are reactive rather than proactive, and this is one of those cases. Indeed. Before I let you go, you know, Tom Brady and Bill Belichick, real quick, your thoughts on their legacy and place in history. Like, you know, if a week or so now it comes out or it's found out that, you know, they purposely 
deflated those footballs or whatever it may be. I mean, does it change your opinion on who they are, you know, what their legacy is in the history of the NFL? I'm not going to have a a tainted view on either of those guys. Like I said, the second half of the game against the the Colts and, and this Super Bowl, Tom Brady, there's not much more you can ask of a guy. You know, there really isn't. And I mentioned the second half in this game because those were the two games where there was no doubt that the balls were inflated to the correct playing weight and, and everything in that matter. So me personally, this deflate gate thing is not going to taint their legacy at all to me. Um, Brady has to be mentioned with, with the greatest ones. There's just no getting around it. He's one of those guys that has put up the stats and also put up the the wins, you know, the, the Lombardis, the Super Bowl MVPs. Only other quarterback with three MVPs is, is Joe Montana. Mm-hmm. Two other quarterbacks with four Super Bowl victories, and that's Montana and Bradshaw. So there's not much more you can say for you. You want a guy that threw for, for 50 touchdowns, he's done that. Do you want a guy that, that – I mean, look at the, the receivers that he's had also. I mean, we're talking about uh, David Patton, Troy Brown, uh, you know, Gibbons. These aren't guys that Amendola, Edelman, I mean, these guys are, are good, but none of them are, even get a sniff when it comes to Hall of Fame. And mm-hmm. I think that what Brady has done with what's been given to him is it, remarkable. And I don't think that a lot of other quarterbacks would have been able to do what he's done with this team that he's had. So, yeah, he's got to be in there. Belichick, I mean, there's not many coaches who understand both sides of the game as well as he does. If you watch Belichick during practices and, and hearing stories about him. This is a guy that knows every single position, and he could coach each position effectively. You can't – it doesn't get much better than that. You you look at how he's able to win. You mentioned him able to win the ball, win the game running the ball, win the game throwing the ball. Talking with the Ravens staff, you know, as far as their preparation, they felt like we have to get ready for everything because – Bill Belichick and his coaching staff brings just that everything on the offensive and defensive side of the ball. Belichick has to be mentioned with, with the greats as well. So I think that their legacy is validated with this win, and they both need to be mentioned at the as the best at, at their respective uh, jobs. Yeah, I totally agree with you. I mean, Tom Brady, Tom Brady passed all the tests. He he passed the eye test, obviously for one. He passed the statistical test. Um, you know, I mean, he his first three Super Bowls came in an era in which it still was, you know, tough to pass the ball and get the job done. And, you know, quarterbacks, you know, I mean, the NFL was obviously tougher then. You know what I mean? He came back, he won this Super Bowl, you know, versus one of the best defenses that we have saw over the last 20 years or so. So you got the eye test for me, you got the Super Bowls, you know what I mean, and you got the numbers. And then, I mean, Belichick, I mean, anybody that understands football knows what kind of coach this guy is. And like you said, it's not too many coaches that is good on both sides of the football, good at coaching any position, period. Malcolm Butler said in practice when they was running against the scout team, he ran the same play, and he got beat on it. And he said Bill Belichick walked over to him and told him, you can't take a false step if this happened again. Mm-hmm. 
You just got to go make a break on the ball and make a play on the ball. And bam, what happened? I mean, it was, he, he was coached to do it. Now look at it. it. You know, that's a great point. Like, it's no other way for me to put it. Now, I mean, like, the results are there, man, regardless of what people want to say. And, you know, here in Philadelphia, you know, this town, I mean, they hate the Patriots or whatever because, you know, they beat the Eagles in the whole Spygate thing. But, I mean, look, I keep it objective. And, I mean, Brady, Belichick, they are what they are. They, two are the best to ever do it in this sport. Yeah, I mean, that's the bottom line. That There really isn't much more to add to that. All right. So, Ron, before you go, let everybody know where they can get at you. You know, Twitter, Facebook, let them know where they can read your work at, man. Yeah, uh, Twitter, at tdavenport underscore PPI. Facebook is just my name, Teron Davenport. Draft is coming, so uh, I made some good connections with some agents and things like that out there in Arizona. So I'll have some guys coming. Uh, I got a couple draft diaries that, that we're going to get started on. Um, yeah, man, it's, it's going to be good. Definitely tune in. You can see some work at uh, BaltimoreTimes.com, also ProPlayerInsiders.com. There's a lot of things going on. So it's uh, just getting back in the swing of things. Take this weeks to kind of recover and got the combine in, in a week and a half, so it's definitely uh, ready to get going soon. Yeah, definitely. Get to Russ and me, you, Brandon Howard, Emory Hunt. Like, we all got to link up and try to figure out a way to get – we can do some sort of, you know, NFL draft podcast, you know, position by position, and, you know, break it down for the people, man. Yeah, yeah, that would be really good. We could definitely get that going, just, uh, you know, keep in touch. Let's do it, man. I'm excited about that, actually. Yeah, indeed, indeed, man. Again, Teron Davenport, Baltimore Times, Pro Player Insiders, thank you for joining the show. Get your rest, man. You deserve it, man. Yeah, I appreciate it. Oh, and, uh, man, you had me cracking up talking about Warren Sapp had to, had to purchase Yams. <laughs> like, I, come on, bro. Like, really? Like, well, what's, what's up with the dude, man? I, I couldn't believe it. I, I could not believe it. I mean, look, it was already bad enough uh, the young boy from Moesha got caught. You know what I mean? But Sapp? <laughs> yeah. I, I don't get it, man. You know, first Greg Anthony and then him. What's what's this world coming to? I don't know, man. I mean, and then you end up losing your gig over the gig that I, me and you would both love to have. Like, come on, yep. man. Yep. Oh, I don't know what to say about it, man. I don't know, man. All right, bro. Get some rest, man. I heard right, you more. Appreciate it. Yes, sir. All right. All right. That was Teron Davenport, Ravens reporter for ProPlayerInsiders.com, Baltimore Times. I want to thank you for coming on, recapping the Super Bowl with us. And, you know, to go on about Tom Brady and Bill Belichick, their legacy, in my opinion, is cemented. And I know a lot of people here in Philadelphia, um, you know, will question it and, you know, the integrity and, you know, the whole Spygate thing. And then, you know, now these footballers look. To do what they were, they've been able to do over the last 15 years, six Super Bowl appearances, four wins, all the wins, the numbers. I mean, Tom Brady, and I still, in my opinion, when I go eye test, I still believe uh, John Elway is the best quarterback I've ever seen. 
Tom Brady, Joe Montana, Steve Young, whomever else you want to say, it's things that John Elway did and accomplished that I don't believe that those other guys would have been able to do. You know what I mean? As far as getting certain teams, getting certain teams to the Super Bowl with the talent that he was given. You know, John Elway got three teams in the 80s to the Super Bowl in the era in which they had no business being in the Super Bowl, 87, 86, 87, and 89. John Elway got the Denver Broncos to three Super Bowls versus uh, three great teams, and 89 versus a 49ers team with Jerry Rice, John Taylor, Roger Craig, you know, loaded with pro bowlers and Hall of Famers. He got the Broncos to a Super Bowl and was overmatched in that game. In 86 versus a great Giants team led by Bill Parcells, you know what I mean? Phil Sims, Lawrence Taylor, you know, Mark Bavaro, Harry Carson, Carl Banks. Had no business getting that team to that Super Bowl, but he single-handedly got them there. In 87 versus the Redskins, a team that was loaded defensively, a team with a great run game, and, you know, Doug Williams and Timmy Smith, you know, had big-time performances in that game. Those Broncos teams had no business being there. They stumped defensively and offensively. They had the three amigos um, at wide receiver, and the three, three amigos was one of the most overrated trios of wide receivers ever in the history of the NFL. You know, not great running games. He carried those teams, three teams in the 80s, in which, you know, an era of football was great. John Elway was able to carry those teams to to those Super Bowls, and he ended up losing because he was a one-man army, point blank period. When I look at the history of this game, I don't know if there's any other quarterbacks that could have got those three teams to those Super Bowls. So, and then John Elway won two on his way out, was the MVP of his last one. And he still, at age 37 and 38, was one of the top quarterbacks in the league. They gave him a running game. They put together a defense that can play. He won two Super Bowls, walked out in the sunset. I still got John Elway as my number one quarterback. You know what I mean? Tom Brady and Joe Montana is right there. Those are my top three quarterbacks of all time. And, you know, however else you want to fill out the rest of the list, you know, you can do that. But Tom Brady, Bill Belichick, first ballot Hall of Famers. Hopefully by the time that they're able to go in, whenever they do, you know, call it quits, I'm able, you know, to have some sort of vote. But I'll definitely be voting those guys in. You know, it won't be no personal preference, you know, personal vendettas with me. You know, if you're a Hall of Famer, you're a Hall of Famer, point blank, period. Let's talk about the call, the call that was heard around the world. You know, Daryl Bevel, Pete Carroll, they decided to pass the ball. Daryl Bevel threw Ricardo Lockett under the bus, you know, which I think was a coward move, and I think it was point. I think it was ridiculous. I mean, look, I try to keep things simple when they're simple, and this it's not a whole look. You got Marshawn Lynch. You got Beast Mode. He just got it to the one. You wasted almost 40 seconds from the end of that play to the next play. How about you 
get back up, you line up, and you run the ball downhill, and you win the ball game. It's that simple with me. And if you decide to run a pass play, run a, a, a pass play with the option to throw it away, not a quick hitting, you know, hit play with a slant that everybody's seen you done do all year. That's my whole thing. You run it, if you're going to decide to pass it, three options. Read option, Marshawn, if it's not there. Russell Wilson, keep it. If the guy's not open the pass, you can throw the ball away. You still got two chances left to win the Super Bowl, your second one in a row. I can understand why Seattle's players are upset. I can see why Seattle fans and everybody that's watched the Super Bowl question the move because I questioned it. I was in shock. I was bewildered, befuddled, and everything else. But, hey, I mean, what can you do? The game's a game. is over with now. I'm a fan of the sport. I cover the sport. I cover sports, period. Like, I can get over it. I'm not a fan. Seattle Seahawks fans, I know they're very upset. It probably was some broken TVs, holes in walls. I mean, some guys probably had to get in, in the car and go take a drive. You know what I mean? It, some upset people. I mean, imagine being a kid. I remember being a kid in, in the 80s, in the early 90s. Like, you know, in the, like when I remember we first got cable, probably, you know, sometime in the late 80s. And the Sixers played on Prism at the time. And Charles Barkley, you know, to this day, is probably, you know, my favorite basketball player of all time. As I'm doing my show now, I'm looking at a picture of him through the Phoenix Suns that's, you know, behind me that I'm sitting here at my desk in the lab. I remember Charles, you know, the Sixers, like the teams with Barkley and Jaminski and Mahorn, uh, Hershey Hawkins, Johnny Dawkins, you know, Ryan Anderson, you know, those teams in the late 80s, early 90s. Now, I remember them, you know, making the playoffs, and they made the playoffs because Barkley was that great of a player. I remember them, you know, the five, they used to be a five-game series in the first round, and I remember them getting swept by the Knicks and Ewan pulling out the broom and sweeping the floor here. For the, and I used to be mad, crying, upset, because they, they couldn't, you know, they couldn't get to the championship level. You know what I mean? I remember them trading Charles Barkley, and I was upset. And, you know, the Suns became my team. And I remember – um, I think it was in 91 year, um, Randall Cunningham had broke his, uh, had tore his ACL, Bryce Pop. It might have been 92. You know, 91, 92, one of those years. The Eagles had a, a, a span, probably a five-year span from 88, six-year span from 88 until 93, in which, you know, they were legit. They had a legit chance to win a championship because they had Randall Cunningham. He was a three-time MVP, um, you know, back then, and they had great defenses, and they weren't able to get it done. And I remember being upset and crying because I was a fan back then, and it was the Eagles, and it was the Sixers for me, and it was the Lakers, um, and I liked the Broncos as well, you know, I will admit. You know, back then, I know how it felt to be a fan to have my team lose. So I can only imagine how the CLC Hawks fans feel. And the the players feel just as bad, people, just as bad. You got guys in there, you know, 
questioning the play call crime. I mean, look, even though they won it last year, that don't mean they didn't want to win it this year. And Pete Carroll and Russell Wilson, you know, they said it's not going to define their careers and it's going to make them stronger. You know, I'm looking forward to seeing how they bounce back because looking at the serious injuries in the Legion of Boom, Richard Sherman is going to need Tommy John surgery. Um, what's name tore a rotator cuff and had a dislocated shoulder, and he played through that, Earl Thomas. They said Cam Chancellor's knee injury is more serious than we thought. He gutted out. like They re- They said he really shouldn't have played. And, you know, it. He they said he, pro- he re-injured an injury that he already had from years prior, and he's been playing through it. So now we got to see how all three of those guys bounce back. Jeremy Lane broke his arm pretty badly. In the NFL, windows are short. Windows of opportunity to win can be very short, regardless of how it looks on paper. The question is now, how do they bounce back? You know, they're going to pay Russell Wilson at some point. Marshawn Lynch, I believe, has two good years left to him. I was talking to uh, Martin Luther King High School and former SLC great Sean Colson about, you know, he had called me right after the game was over, you know, asking me about, you know, the play call and stuff like that. I said, you know, on paper it looks like the Seahawks have a long window and definitely with Russell Wilson, who's one of the top five quarterbacks in this league, who's a, a elite football player. He's a great football player. Elite great without look, he's a great quarterback. He's one of the great quarterbacks in this league. He can get it done every way possible. They will have a chance. But the thing about it now compared like when John when not when John when Joe Montana and Terry Bradshaw won, it wasn't the free agent era. Nowadays it's harder to keep teams together because of free agency. But the good teams continue to be good because they replace the players that they use other free agents, but the top thing that you have to do in today's NFL, you have to draft well and build your team through the draft. Point blank period. If you cannot build through the draft and you got to keep going the way of trying to bring in you know, guys via free agency, that's when things start to go bad. When I look at the Philadelphia Eagles, they have to get better via the draft. They have to draft players that can come in and play. If they're going to add some free agents, they got to add guys that can come in and make an impact. Because at this point, it's no rebuilding thing for the Eagles. They're going to year three. They won 20 games the first two years under Chip Kelly. It's not a rebuilding um, year. No, this is a year in which you got to go forward. If you put the proper pieces together, you can make a Super Bowl run. The Eagles have to get better defensively. They have to get corners that can run and cover. You know what I mean? They have to get a safety that can not blow assignments and make plays on the football down the field. They got to get an inside linebacker to replace D'Amico Ryans at some point. They got to get production out of Marcus Smith, the second, this year. They got to find... Trent Cole's replacement on the other side. I mean, now it may be Marcus Smith, you know, him and kind of borrowing, but you also need another third guy. I mean, Brandon Graham had a great year 
last year, and he's going to cash in. Brandon Brandon Graham is going to cash in, and he probably won't be here. So you got to find a third outside linebacker to be in the mix. Offensively, your guards are old. Ty Harriman, Evan Mathis, you need a replacement for them. Jason Peters is getting up there in years. You got to find a, a tackle that's going to be able to replace him at some point. That's why I say, like, the window of opportunity, you know what I mean? This isn't a rebuilding team that Eagles have. You know what I mean? What is Chip Kelly's mindset as far as Nick Foles in the quarterback situation? You see that gun ho and believing that Marcus Mariota is the immediate answer. But like I said, this isn't year one of Chip Kelly. This is year three. If this was year one of Chip Kelly and he wanted to trade the house or whatever it was for Mariota, and even though I don't think Mariota is going to be ready immediately, I would be okay with it because you know what? By year two, halfway year two, I would expect Mariota to be ready. You know what I mean? It would be him and Kelly coming in year one. You know what I mean? If I seen two years of Mariota and this was going to year three and I thought he looked decently and I really thought he could have a breakout year three, then I would be okay with it. But Chip Kelly, five-year deal this year three. In my opinion, if things ain't working out by the end of year four, if they can see the regress, what Chip Kelly's going to do, he's going to bounce. Point blank period. He's going to roll out, go back to college, get a great job, make ten million a year, and had ability to go get any of the any and all the players that he wants. We'll see how it plays out. Atlanta Falcons announced Seahawks defense coordinator Dan Quinn as their head coach. Um, Arthur Blank said he has control and final say of the fifty three man roster. Him, Thomas Dimitrov, and Scott Pioli all will work together to put that roster together. Um, obviously, they need immediate help on the defensive end. They have no ability to get to the quarterback. And, you know, over the last two years, they arguably had the worst defense in the, in, in the NFL. Dan Quinn has worked under Nick Saban. Um, you know, he's worked, you know, been a defense coordinator at the University of Florida. I mean, he's been around a lot of people and learned a lot of things, and he's had some success. I'm looking forward to see what he brings to the table, you know, with the Falcons, because the Falcons offensively, in my opinion, are fine. Need, you know, add some help on the offensive line, but you got Matt Ryan, who's a quarterback I think you can win a Super Bowl with. You got Julio Jones, one of the top five wide receivers in this game. And you got some young running backs in Devontae Freeman, who I think has a chance to be a very good player in this league. You got Antoine Smith. You got a Steven Jackson who's done for and needs to retire. In my opinion, the Atlanta Falcons, if they get right defensively, can be one of those teams. And we see it all the time in the NFL that can go make a jump and back into the playoffs because there's some talent already there. Dan Quinn, you know, is a great defensive mind, a great defensive teacher, and if they can get that defense together, they can be a winning football team. Johnny Manziel has entered – a treatment facility, um, you know, for program recovery and whatever it may be. I'm not going to say a lie to you and act like I know what his issue is. You know what I mean? Some people go into recovery for a lot of different things and a lot of different reasons. I'm a 
a re- alcoholic in recovery myself. That's my issue among, you know, dealing with depression and, and abandonment issues from my childhood. You know what I mean? I don't know what Johnny Manziel is going through, but him getting the help is exactly what he needs, professional help, and I pray for him, and I hope he's taking it seriously and, you know, he can get that together then concentrate on the whole football thing. Um, my reasons for not, you know what I mean, thinking he was a first-round quarterback had, had to do with football-related stuff. You know what I mean? It had nothing to do with, like, I don't know him personally. I don't know if he has a drug issue, alcohol issue, whatever it may be. I'm not going to be one of those guys that's going to sit here, like, and act like I know what's going on, like a Stephen A. Smith or Chris or Carter or whomever. I don't know Johnny Manziel personally, but I think it's a great step for him. Um, you know, the Browns and the NFL, hopefully they support this guy. And I think, you know, he definitely is going to need, obviously, to his family's support and the support from the people close to him. But the Browns invested the first-round pick in him, and even though this is a business, they decided to draft this kid. They believed in him, and hopefully they don't give up on him because, you know, of this. Um, the Philadelphia Eagles, the question is at this point, if you had to choose one to bring back next year, would it be running back Shady McCoy or would it be wide receiver Jeremy Macklin, who had a career year coming off an of ACL tear, um, is going had the capability to cash in because of the great year. He gambled on himself, and he did a great job gambling. We've seen for two years in a row wide receivers with skill, Deshaun Jackson and now Macklin, be very successful playing for Chip Kelly. But does that make him expendable? Do you think that another guy can just come in and, you know, have the same success? And, I mean, if they're going to replace him with Demarius Thomas, who's a free agent, I'm okay with that because Demarius Thomas, is a proven commodity in this league. But if you had to choose one, Shady McCoy or Jeremy Macklin, what would your choice be? I mean, because I still think, regardless of what people say about Shady, he still got tread left on the tires. You know what I mean? Like, there's still something left with him. But I also do know that Running back, it's easy to find a running back. I'm not going to sit here and act like Shady McCoy is just another guy. Like, you know what I mean? He's just that easy to replace. Like, we can just get another guy and, you know what I mean, bam. Like, oh, you know, that's cool. We ain't got Shady no more. You know what I mean? We can we can just replace. I mean, the guy got 1,400 carries, six over 60 6,800 yards in his career, 44 touchdowns, rushing on the ground. He's been a productive player in this league. But he got a big cap hit, and, you know, there's a business side to this game as well. I mean, over the last the last two seasons, he's rushed for over 2,900 yards, um, had over 300 carries in both of those years. I mean, this year he had a down year. Uh only got in the end zone five times, averaged 4.2 a carry. I mean, his catches are down. But, I mean, you look at the shelf life of a running back. Right now at this point, Shady McCoy has 
1,761 touches in his career right now. At some point, we do see guys lose, lose it. And right now, I, I think Shady McCoy still has a good amount left in him. I mean, he's going into his seventh season. But if you're the Eagles, if he doesn't want to, you know, restructure his contract, take less money, I mean, do you trade him and see what you can get from him? And, I mean, this year and this year's draft, there's a lot of running backs that's, that can come in and start and be effective from day one. I think I got eight or nine running backs with with grades, you know, from the first to the fourth round, you know, guys that come in and that can come in and play, that can catch the ball, that can run the ball, that can block. I mean, and Jeremy Macklin's coming off a great year. This I will say, if the Eagles don't re-sign Macklin, don't come into next season and tell me that Matthews, Huff, and Riley Cooper is okay, because that's not. I mean, that that's it, – it ain't, point blank, period. Like, that's something that I'm not going to agree with. We'll see how it plays out. Chip Kelly has final say on the roster. You know, him and Ed uh, Manowitz, you know, is in the front office. You know, they, the guys number one and two. And we're going to see how it plays out, man. Like, I mean, we'll definitely see how it's going to play out. It's going to be very interesting to see, you know, with how the Eagles offseason is going to go with Chip Kelly not only being a coach, but being the czar of everything football as far as operations and personnel and the draft and trades and free agency, I mean, this could be a complete train wreck for all we know. It could be a complete disaster. But, I mean, we'll see how it plays out. Um, on to the NBA, just sports in general. NBA Commissioner Adam Silver met up with all the – other commissioners from the leagues about making sports gambling legal. And, I mean, since I've been a kid, it's been illegal sports betting going on in many places that I've been. You know what I mean? And I like to bet games every once in a while when I got the money. Like, I'm not a, a guy with a lot of extra spare money. So, you know, I don't – I try not to get – like, I'm not a addicted gambler. Like, it's people that got a gambling addiction. Like, I got an alcohol addiction. I'm not a addicted gambler, but I do, especially during the football season, give out, you know, games to people to bet on and stuff like that. Um, you know, Adam Silver believes in, you know, if this regulated and legislated, um, obviously is hundreds of billions of dollars in illegal sports gambling going on across this country. And, you know, t- states, if they regulate this and legislate it and, you know, it's allowed across the country, it's going to be more jobs more revenue coming in, and it's going to be handled, and it's not going to be you finding somebody killed in an alley somewhere because they decide, because they can't pay a bet, or they, you know what I mean, because they've lost bets and they can't pay their debts, or they oh, they got to pay debts out and they can't pay them. You know what I mean? You would take away, you know, a crime, the middleman. I mean, I think it would be a good thing overall for the country, period, but there's some people that think it don't. Okay, well, that's fine and dandy. Well, you're going to continue to have people that are going to bet illegally 
and there's going to be crime, and you know, there's going to be a lot of, you know, bad things happening. But I mean, we'll see how it plays out. I think it's a good idea. LeBron James said Kevin Love needs more confidence in his shot. Um, you know, Kevin Love isn't having – he's having an okay season. I mean, his numbers are okay as I pull them up. Um, let's see what Kevin Love is doing this year. I know he's shooting under 43% from the field, which is a complete disgrace for a power forward. But then again – He's a 45% shooter for his career, so he hasn't been, you know, a, a, a great, you know, shooter from the field. Um, Kevin Love this year is averaging 17 points, 10.5 rebounds a game, um, shooting 42% from the field, taking 13 shots a game, which is obviously down from the 18.5 that he took last year. Last year, it was 26 and 12 and a half rebounds a game, shot 46% from the field, um, 37 from three, and 82 from the line. I mean, he's in a different spot right now. I mean, he's not the guy. He's not the go-to guy. He has to learn to play off of LeBron James and Kyrie Irving. And you look at his field goal attempts, he's taken out of 13 shots a game, he's taken five from three-point land. Um, I mean, and – over the last his last four years, he shot well over five three pointers a game in twenty in twenty eleven and twelve, twenty twelve thirteen, and then last year he shot six and a half three point shots a game. I got into a debate on Twitter last year. You know, people that you know is in love with Kevin Love. Oh, he's this great post player. He's not a great post player. Kevin Love don't even demand a double team in a post. Not a great post player. Kevin Love, as I said, is in a pick-and-pop situation. We play with Ricky Rubio. They run pick-and-roll. He can hit the mid-range shot. He expands his game out to the three-point line. He's a great offensive rebounder. He doesn't finish over the top. I mean, he, gets to the, he you know, got to the foul line a lot. You know, his last three years in Minnesota, he got to the foul line eight and a half times a game, eight times a game, 8.2 a game. He's going to get to the foul line this year 5.1 times a game. Kevin Love, the, the uh, Cleveland Cavs are still finding their way. But I said this before the season. It's easy to put up numbers in, in a place where there's no expectations to win. It's easy to put up those numbers and not play defense and nobody not give a damn. But Kevin Love, 48 games with the Cleveland Cavaliers, and everybody has watched those 48 games. And you know what what has happened? People start to realize, oh, Kevin Love Love really can't post up like Brandon said. Kevin Love is a horrible defensive player, like Brandon said. Yeah, I mean, he is. Kevin Love has put up numbers. Hasn't won anything in his career. This is his first time on, on a winning a team that's winning or has a chance to make the playoffs and actually, you know, contend for an NBA title. Kevin Love has to get his confidence back. And what he and Kyrie Irving have to understand is that in order to win a championship, you have to sacrifice something. You have to be willing to give up something. 
You got to be willing to give up shot attempts. You got to be willing to give up your body and take charges and, and play defense. You know what I mean? Like, you got to be willing to move the basketball. You got to be willing to know that LeBron James is going to hit a ball in his hands and we got to play off LeBron. We can't bitch and moan about not getting the same amount of shots and not putting up the same amount of points. Because at the end of the day, it's all about winning. That's what it's all about. And Kevin Love is who he is. He's never shot over 50% in his career. But, I mean, from a 6'10 power forward, but, you know what I mean, he's Carl Malone. He's Charles Barkley. He's Kevin Garnett. Nah, he's not that, people. He's not that. Not at all. Chris Bosh put up great numbers in Toronto, they number one. Chris Bosh bitched and moaned about his role, um, you know what I mean, early with the Heat. But in years two and three, he won a championship. He got used to his role. He defended better. You know, he rebounded a little bit more. He gave up. He sacrificed something to win two championships, and nobody can ever take that away from him. Kevin Love is in a contract year. He can walk at the end of this year. In my opinion, just like with Carmelo Anthony, with with Kevin Love, we're going to know what's his agenda because he can go sign with the Lakers and not have a chance of winning. Or he can stay with LeBron James and be the third guy and have a chance to win a couple championships while LeBron James is still in his prime and Kyrie Irving, even if LeBron falls off a bit, Kyrie Irving and Kevin Love is good enough to score enough to carry the load for them to win a championship. Does Kevin Love want to be a winner, or does he want to be known as a guy who put up numbers on bad teams? That's, I mean, that's what it comes down to. Carmelo Anthony didn't want to win. Go to Chicago Bulls. You got a chance to win the East and, and play for the championship. No, Carmelo Anthony wanted the money. That's why Carmelo Anthony, as great as an individual player he is, never made anybody better, and that's why he's a loser. Point blank, period. That's Sports Trap Radio for tonight. Shout out to Ant Green. Under the weather, hail up, homie. I got you. Shout out to everybody at NGSC Sports. Shout out to my boys at WarroomSports.com. Make sure you check them out, WarroomSports.com, Thursday, 6 to 8 p.m., the Wu-Tang Clan of Sports Trap Radio and Sports Media and Sports Business. For Brandon Pemberton, which is me, I'm not speaking to third person, I'm out of here, man. I'm about to finish watching this basketball game, do some scouting, meet Teron Davenport, hopefully Brandon Howard, and Emory Hunt, we can link up and, you know, do some podcasts and stuff like that um, pertaining to the NFL draft. I got plenty of scouting left to do. Uh, there's 22 positions, you know, in the, in the NFL. You know, I'm going to have scouting reports and rankings on 20 players per position, so you figure it all out. I'm Sports Trapping Brand, the maestro of the playbook. I do this, people. Me and Aunt Green, we really do this. March Madness NBA is going to be in full effect. Aunt Green, the lead senior NBA analyst for Sports Trap Radio, 
is going to show y'all what it's all about, people. I want to thank y'all again for joining me tonight, Friday Sports Trap TV. It's going to be a great show. Holler at us. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.